All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Um, well, the issue of freedom of the press has been one that is pretty gigantic throughout the Trump administration. It's also a very large issue under Obama as well. Now we're gonna have a new administration, although um, Trump also thinks that's fake news. Uh, he might come to find out on January 20th that it isn't. Um, but we wanna bring on uh, Joel Simon, who's the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. Uh, to have a conversation about this. So Joel, uh, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you so much, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Uh, absolutely, great to have you on. So Joel, there's a lot of uh, elements to this. First, let's talk about the damage that was done internationally by Trump uh, constantly calling all the media fake news for these last five years. You know, there's. I think that's the nature of you know the, the way we tend to look at these issues through a very uh, a domestically focused lens. And there's no question that Trump's rhetoric has undermined public confidence in the media, undermined public confidence in experts. Um, it's undermined our democracy, frankly, but it's actually done much more damage globally. And let me, let me explain why. Because the Trumpian rhetoric of fake news, of enemies of the people, that has been embraced by authoritarian leaders around the world. And we've seen record numbers, for example, of journalists imprisoned around the world. We've seen new fake news laws implemented by various governments. You know, you may have even seen these press conferences with Trump, with, with Vladimir Putin, um, or, or other leaders, and they make a joke about, you know, fake news and 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 you know, do you have that problem in your country? And Putin nods knowingly, yes, we have that problem in our country. And all the journalists in Russia know exactly what that means. You know, Trump might be using rhetoric, but in Russia, uh, you know, if you if you get crosswise with Putin, uh, things could go very badly. Yeah. So um, great, empowering dictators throughout the world. Um, so that's what throws. Yeah. Yeah, super frustrating. And and look, I, I don't think it takes so much courage to be in media in America, but and, and unfortunately a lot of folks don't even clear that bar. And so I have plenty of critique of the media in America myself, but not in these ridiculous enemy of the state kind of talk. That, But in terms of the rest of the world, journalists are the some of the bravest people on the planet. You're gonna be a journalist in Russia and point out what Putin's doing wrong. You're playing with your life, that is unbelievable yeah. bravery. Also in China and so many other places. Yeah. And he's done yeah. great damage to those people. There's one last piece of irony before we move on to Biden. So he he screams at, at how he's gonna shut down all these media outlets. Jeff Bezos is Washington Post, the social media outlets, etc. And then turns around and says he's an advocate, he's a big champion of free speech. Joel, has it been dispiriting to see that the half this country cannot see the massive gigantic hypocrisy of those statements? Yeah, well, look, I, I, yes, of course it's, 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 it's dispiriting. Um, but I tend to, you know, I, you know, again, you know, Trump has sort of tapped in to the to the hostility that already exists towards the media, to the to the mistrust of experts, to the sense that, you know, the sense that the media reflects um, the uh, perspective of elites, et cetera, et cetera. And he's tapped into that, but that's not unique. I mean, we're seeing those that kind of backlash. We saw it in Venezuela. We see it in Russia. We've seen it in Turkey. Uh, you know. Autocratic leaders, populists, um, Hungary, Poland, many in many countries around the world, they're able to mobilize the public against the media by 
presenting this narrative. And so Trump has tapped into it in this country. But again, I can't help but see this from a global perspective. And the US has been certainly an imperfect but an important champion of press freedom and the rights of journalists, and that is gone. That is gone and it means that there's accelerated crackdowns in Egypt and the Philippines and so many countries around the world where as you say, Cenk, it really takes so much courage to go out and report the news. And I think that should be inspiring and humbling for journalists in this country, frankly. Yeah, 100%. So let me turn to the journalists in this country. Because I think part of what happened here was that they enabled this. And and they enabled it in two different ways. And so number one was um, this unwillingness to do anything uh, that isn't neutral. So he said, she said is already damaging to journalism to begin with. Because I don't care what he said or she said, I care what actually happened. And so there's a massive difference between objectivity, which is telling you what happened, and neutrality, which is telling you, I can't tell what happened. I'm just gonna say the Democrats say this and the Republicans say that. That that privileged um, lies and put it on an equal footing with the truth. It was political correctness. And number two, Joel, in my opinion, they are a lot, let me put it this way. Almost everyone on cable news is elitist. Um, they, they're almost all multimillionaires. Uh, they think that anything outside of the status quo is an abomination. Uh, and so they privileged corporate Republicans and corporate Democrats for decades. So as much as I hate to see the press being attacked overall, I'm part of the press, I run a media network. Um, I think the mainstream media opened themselves up to this attack. Uh, and so I, I'm curious what your take on that is here in America. Uh, you look, I think I think it's 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 so varied. I mean, everyone likes to talk about the media. I don't I don't even know what that means. Uh, there's so many different kinds of media. There's you know there's 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 cable news. There's blogs. There's websites. There's social media. There's citizen journalists. There's you know there's so many different kinds of things. I think your critique is valid when it's applied uh, towards certain media outlets, certain journalists. Fine, everyone's got their critique. Um, but I think overall, there's actually been some incredible uh, accountability reporting and investigative reporting uh, during the Trump administration. It's been advantaged by the fact that the White House leaks like a sieve. Uh, they're trying to keep secrets that journalists are ferreting out. So there's, first of all, I think there's been um, uh, some some remarkable uh, reporting that we have to acknowledge. The second point I want to make, uh, Jenk, is that you know freedom of the press, freedom of of speech. There's no guarantee that people will use that speech responsibly or use it for the right purposes. You see governments like the government of Singapore making that argument. Like if people are irresponsible in the way that they use speech, well, we've got to curtail it. We've got to, you know, the government has to intervene and actually control and manage what people say. Thankfully, you know, that doesn't exist in this country. And so we have a lot of media that, you know, perhaps people disagree with. Um, that's all fine and good. But I think the one thing that we have to keep in mind is that we would have none of this, that we wouldn't even have the potential to correct ourselves and to improve uh, the situation if we didn't have the basic freedoms. And that's not something that Trump believes. And that is something that he would, if he had the opportunity, I believe, and he, he indicated this on many occasions and he attempted to actually you know, restrict the work of the media, certainly to intimidate journalists, 
Thankfully, I don't think he was successful, but I think that was his intent in many instances. And I think that's something we have to repudiate and reject. Yeah, 100% agreed on that. So uh, now let's talk, uh, talk about the Democrats. So uh, Obama was not uh, particularly good on freedom of the press. That's a massive understatement. Um, he uh, so let me let you do your job. What, what did Obama yeah, yeah. Uh, get wrong when he came to the press? Well, we did we did the Committee to Protect Journalists, the organization. I think we did a major report in 2013 called the Obama Administration of the Press, and we really laid out. It was written by. Uh, Leonard Downey Jr. is the former executive editor of the Washington Post, so he's seen a few things, and he he actually opined that uh, Obama, the Obama administration, was the most secretive administration he'd seen uh, since the Nixon administration. Um, so the Obama the Obama administration. First of all, I do want to note that, that President Obama uh, spoke in very positive ways about the importance of, of freedom of the press, and he, he talked a good game, and that's not insignificant. That's not. A, Unimportant when you think about what Trump's done. And it's also his foreign policy was generally, I can also be critical, but was generally supportive of press freedom. Where I fault him and where we're highly critical is one, he was highly uh, controlling. He was obsessed with leaks. He was not transparent. He managed the agencies and the departments in such a way that it was very difficult for journalists to get access uh, to senior officials and get on the record interviews. So he made that very difficult. And his Justice Department prosecuted leakers systematically. In fact, during the Obama administration, the Espionage Act, which was a very restrictive law passed in 1917, which was initially intended to obviously suppress espionage, was actually used to go after People who leaked information to the press. So there were there were a lot of policies that the Obama administration followed, which were antithetical to press freedom. We were critical, and we called him out on that. Yeah, the using the Espionage Act against journalists was unreal. It opened a very ugly door, which Trump walked through pretty clearly. But he also did. Things like calling the leader of Yemen and asking that he continue to classify a journalist there that exposed that we had bombed a wedding as a terrorist and keep him in jail longer. So I think Obama, it's fair to say, in my opinion, was terrible when it comes to freedom of the press. So I'm a little bit harsher than you are on that. But but last thing here, fair enough. yeah, and Biden will probably do. Almost the exact same thing that, that uh, Obama did. So, uh, last thing here, uh, I'm curious what you think of the Julian Assange situation. So, there's been this artificial divide uh, where the rest of the press say, "Oh, please, I do declare um, uh, he he's not approved by us." So you can jail him any way you like. Um, and now I'm oversimplifying, definitely hyperbole, right? But what what do you think of the Assange situation? Has he has his journalism been criminalized? I mean, look, I, th- I think we're obsessed with this whole debate about is Julian Assange a journalist or is he not a journalist? Does he follow like journalistic ethics or not? I mean, I think we could debate that round or square. Um, you know, I, I actually don't don't consider him a journalist. I consider him a kind of you know anti secrecy activist, if you want to call him that. But 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 that's really irrelevant. The real question is, what is the impact on press freedom if he's prosecuted under the Espionage Act for for, for making public classified information that 
the U.S. government has determined is classified. Think about the implications of that. If the U.S. government can determine that making public information that it deems classified is a crime, and people who do that are subject to prosecution and could face long jail sentences, then journalism is effectively criminalized. And not only that, it's they're internationalizing the prosecution because Julian Assange is not in the United States. He's he's facing extradition from the UK. So what that essentially means is that any journalist anywhere in the world who publishes classified information could at least theoretically be prosecuted under the Espionage Act and extradited to the United States to face those charges. That is an incredibly dangerous precedent for press freedom for the work of journalists. And it really doesn't matter what you think of Julian Assange, whether you like him or hate him. If you're a journalist and you care about press freedom, you should be very, very concerned about this prosecution and this, this attempt to extradite him to the United States. Yeah, again, I agree 100% there. Look, my opinion is that all journalists should be anti-secret secrecy activists of some sort. <laughs> you're trying to get information from the government to give us more transparency. But and there are definitely things that I've publicly disagreed with Julian Assange on. But as you point out, that is totally irrelevant. Uh, trying to prosecute him for uh, what yeah. he's revealed about governments is outrageous and an awful precedent. So, um, all right, Joel Simon, Executive Director of Committee to Protect Journalists. Thank you so much for joining us and for uh, for being uh, an activist to protect media overall throughout the world. We appreciate that. It's been such a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. All right, back on a conversation. Um, joining us now is Greg Palast. Uh, he's an investigative journalist who's been on the BBC, Rolling Stone, Guardian, and he's been tracking purge votes in Georgia. Boy, did that wind up becoming relevant in this election, and it's still relevant uh, for who's controlling the Senate. So, Greg, welcome back to the Young Turks. Glad to be with you. All right. Um, so, Greg, uh, let's first talk about the irony of Brad Raffens Perger, as it turns out, is how you Perger. pronounce it. Yes. Um, so he's the Georgia Secretary of State, and now the right wing is convinced that he is working with Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and the ghost of Hugo Chavez to help uh, Democrats steal elections. Uh, can you uh, tell us what the reality is for reference Perger? Okay. Well, let me tell you, and that really is his name, Perger. And uh, Raffens Perger, and by the way, I do want to warn you that he has called me, Brad Raffens Perger, Secretary of State, has called Greg Palast a well known Stacey Abrams shill. Okay, guilty as charged. Next, I, I've been called worse. Happy to take the title. But here's what's really happening with this guy. He's thrown, yeah, he, he can't save Trump. He stole as many votes as he could. I'll be blunt about it. Uh, but uh, Trump is gone. He has to save Mitch McConnell's job. There are, remember, and I'm sure you know everyone in listening to Young Turks knows this, of course, that there is a life and death battle runoff for two Senate seats that will determine which party controls the US Senate. And that is Raffensperger's job to deliver it by hook or crook, and it's mostly crook. I've been working now. Chank in Georgia for seven years. I didn't know why, but I guess a higher authority decided I better be prepared for this moment. So seven years of investigating Raffens Perger and his predecessor, a character named Brian Kemp, who now has the purloined governor's seat, which he stole from Stacey Abrams in 2018. But Raffens Perger is taking the game of Jim Crow sophisticated techniques 
to knock out the Democratic vote to a whole new level. Yeah, so people are mistaking him for some sort of hero of the resistance. But not only did they do the purge before Kemp's election, and that was when Kemp was Secretary of State, and he did his own purge for his own election for governor. Then Raffensperger comes in and he does another voter purge. And now it sounds like they're planning another one before the special election. Is that possible, Greg? Yeah, so let me explain. This guy, not when you say a purge, understand, he's removed over a third of a million voters in the last two years leading up to this election. A third of a million. One, and I can tell you, 198,357 of those people exactly have been illegally and wrongly purged. I had a team of 15 top experts, and we even hired the United States Post Office to help us on this. And we have 198,000 people illegally and wrongly removed. We've been sending out messages, postcards. I've been working with, by the way, that report was issued by the ACLU. Then the ACLU went to Raffensperger and said, look, here's the names of the people. Here's the people, you gotta put these people back on the rolls. This is straight up violation of federal law. And he's re- he played games, he's resisted, he said, "Oh, you know, he had 90 days, which is really cute, it went right past the election. But of course, now we have another election. So uh, this week, we passed that 90 day mark, and he is now subject to a federal lawsuit. I've beat this guy in court, in federal court in February, by the way, um, when he's trying to hide uh, the information on his illegal purges of voter. And when you say purges of voter, let me explain what that means. It means you've been, your registration has been canceled. Including, for example, they say, "Oh, you have moved." Well, yeah, if you don't live in Atlanta, you can't vote in Atlanta legally. But that included, for example, I was at Atlanta polling station. Included a 92-year-old woman, Martin Luther King's cousin, 92 years old, voting same place 50 years. They said she had moved out of Atlanta. No, I went to the house where she supposedly had moved out of. And there was a picture of Martin Luther King on the wall, her cousin. So she'd been in that house 50 years with King at that house coming every Sunday for brunch after the Ebenezer Baptist sermons. But she was guilty of voting while black. So was Raheem Shabazz, guilty of voting while black. This continues on and on. We did an analysis of these lists. It's African American voters, Hispanic voters, Asian American voters are hit hard, and especially young voters. In other words, voters of color. And the color is blue. So with Black Voters Matter and with some of the frontline groups in Georgia, we are bulking up for major action to protect these voters right now. Yeah, so I feel like Raffensperger is barely able to contain himself, Kemp as well. Because (laughs) Trump and all of their zombies are now attacking them saying, why didn't you steal the election for us after we lost? And I think that what Raffensperger wants to say to them is, no, you schmucks, we steal them before the elections, not after the elections. <laughs> and I, you have no idea how much I tried to help steal this election, and I'm not getting proper credit not- for it. <laughs> right? uh, well, yeah, but you know, he's trying to make himself a martyr. Remember, all the people that say, "Oh, we're going to boycott the the runoffs." None of these are Georgians; they're nutcases like like Roger Stone. But here's the problem: he's not done. This past Sunday, we caught him. Three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon before Thanksgiving week, he sneaks out a new regulation that basically says, if you wanna register to vote in Georgia, you have to register a car. 
Like what? We caught him, okay? And and our team caught him, and he and he put it into the regulations. 8 a.m. the next Monday morning. First of all, changing rules within 90 days of an election is a violation of federal law. That doesn't bother them because they figure federal law, you know, kind of bounces off the Georgia borders. I've been, like I said, I've been doing this seven years now, watching these characters. Uh, can you imagine? So now they can't make you buy a car to vote. They would if they could. They can't make you buy a car to vote. That'd be the most expensive poll tax in American history, which is unconstitutional. Rather saying, if you don't have a car registered in Florida, then you're probably not a Georgia resident. You're an illegal voter sneaking in to vote because you haven't registered your car. Well, I think that they know very well who doesn't have cars. Low income people, urban people. People in Atlanta who use public transportation, people can't afford a car, and of course, students. I know that this affected one Georgia voter, my daughter in Savannah. And um, I can tell you, uh, this this is the type of game that they play, and they sneak it in. So They sneak it in, and, and that's just one of the new games that they're playing. Greg, I don't understand it, because they, they can't require you to have a car, like you said, world's largest no. poll tax. So. What is this regular and and people who are registered are already registered? Is it for new registrants? And and if it is, um, if you don't have a car, what's your second option for being able to register to vote? Well, there's a couple things. Number one, uh, no, they say they're only going to apply to new registrants, but that's what we're trying to do: get young people registered. For example, there's 23,000 young people who turned 18 since uh, the general election who will be 18 by the runoff on January 5. Uh, if they try to register, you're talking about an 18 year old, how many have cars? Now again, what they're claiming is that that's, they can use that as evidence that you don't actually reside in Georgia, that you just registered purely to vote in this runoff election. I asked him, I couldn't use my own name, I had to use a cutout in a Zoom meeting, of course, because they would never respond to me. Do you have a single case, one case of an out of state voter voting or attempting to register? Or having mailed in their ballot already, or in the general, do you have a single case of any out-of-state voter illegally voting? And by the way, if you find one, we'll go and arrest them for you because it is a federal crime. They couldn't name; they didn't have one single instance. You know what they had? Some guy named Andrew Yang, who, because <laughs> Yang said he was going down to campaign in Georgia. So that was their excuse that they were warned by Andrew Yang's statement that he's coming down to Georgia. That he was going to illegally vote and bring thousands, if not millions, of voters. I mean, this is the game that they're playing. And they know if they sneak it out, if we don't catch him, if we don't bust it now again, we're taking action. I should say, for example, the Andrew Goodman Foundation. If you remember Goodman, Chainer, Cheney, and Schwerner, the three civil rights workers who were lynched, the families have a foundation which protects young voters because. So many young voters don't have cars, it's actually a violation of the 26th Amendment. But again, what does the 26th Amendment mean in Georgia? I don't think any amendment means anything except the second there. But we are don't assume we're not fighting it. And a lot of it is to tell people, look, if they block your registration, here's what they want to do. They say, oh, don't worry, you can go to a hearing. Now we've got COVID, when do you get the hearing? In February? To get yeah. yourself on the voter rolls. Yeah, so it's okay, you don't lose your vote, you just get a hearing. Sometime next year. Yeah, and if they say that the car is is not absolutely necessary, but is evidence that you don't live in the state, it allows for selective enforcement. 
So if I think you're gonna vote for a Democrat, I say, well, the fact that you don't have a car, I find to be dispositive. But if I think you're gonna vote in the suburbs and you're gonna vote for a Republican, ah, it's not that big a deal, I'll let you vote. So it's, it's, a, it's a giant, giant problem. Just last quick question here, because we're about to run out of time, yeah. Greg. Um, yeah. Through Fair Fight Action and through your work, of the people that were the 198,000 that were illegally purged, do you know how many got put back on the voter rolls and were able to vote? Well, with Black Voters Matter, ACLU and, and others um, and frontline groups down there, we know that we actually returned uh, several thousands, tens of thousands back to the rolls. But it's not good enough because most people who aren't purged have no idea. They just show up and said, you know, scram or here's a provisional ballot and you can wipe your behind with it because they're not going to count it if you're not registered. You can fill it out. So we are, that's one of the reasons we are going to be taking action this week as much for the legal process as to get the word out. And by the way, get ready, there's gonna be some big stars who are gonna be stepping in with PSAs, etc. We're It's a full court press. It's mostly about telling people, check your registration. I don't care if you've been registered 50 years like Martin Luther King's cousin, you better check it now. Go to savemyvote2020.org, savemyvote2020.org. See if you've been purged and until December 7th, you can register or re-register in Georgia. All right, Greg Palast uh, doing great work down in Georgia on, on this issue. Thank you so much for joining us, we appreciate it. You're, you're very welcome, thanks Cenk.